0: following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. All right, today we hit another great passage uh, in Revelation. Did you know this is our 20th week going through Revelation today? It's just flown by, hasn't it? Hasn't it? Yep. You look delighted. Um, Now, I've loved studying the book of Revelation. Uh, I did a paper on it um, at Kerry and also have done quite a bit of study leading up to each sermon. Um, And I'm really enjoying it because each time, and hopefully you find this as well, each passage points to the Lordship of Jesus. Um, And that's great. And today's passage is no exception. Uh, Last week, we kind of heard... The start to this passage, which was at the end of Revelation 15, we had the angels coming into the temple, and they were all in robes, and they had bowls, so you knew that something was going to happen, and then we cut it off, just uh, ready for today's passage. So I'll be reading from Revelation 16, if you'd like to follow along. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers, And springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues. But they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs, And they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, And out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon man. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. Okay, so at first glance, uh, it can seem quite tiring to look at this passage and see another series of judgments. Um, It's kind of like a movie series that keeps on creating sequels. It's like, when will it end? You know, for example, there have been four Jaws movies, and also four in the series of Pirates of the Caribbean. So I think we get the picture, like don't go in open water, ever, because who knows what could happen. Uh, And it's kind of like that in this chapter, uh, in this whole book, really, of all these judgments. Haven't there been enough, we think? You know, do we really need another set, we think to ourselves? But again, we need to see these seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls um, as all layers of the same event, okay? Not 21 separate judgments lined up one after the other but all kind of layered on top of each other, something we're seeing that's one picture from a few different angles. Now, we've heard a lot of this passage before, uh, particularly in chapter 8. So these visions are not descriptions of exactly what's going to happen, but warnings, again, designed to move the hearers and also us today towards repentance and a renewed commitment. But this set is depicted as the third and final visualization of these events. And so this time the bowls affect the entire cosmos, not just a third and not just a half, but the whole thing. And this time we see God's almost total purging of the world of sin. So we go through them. A command from the temple starts us off on the pouring of these bowls. So God allows the natural elements to pass judgment onto humanity who have abused their role as God's image bearers. So again, there's repetition in each of these uh, bowls and each of the plagues. And we'll remember a lot of these passages uh, and their references to Exodus and to also previous ones we've read in this series. So each bowl that's poured out seems to be more horrific than the previous one. So we have these ugly sores, and then the sea turns to blood, and then fresh water also becomes coagulated with blood, Then we take a little break, which is nice, uh, just from this sort of macabre scene to hear some lines of praise for God who is just in his judgments. Which can seem a bit hard to hear because then we hear that the sun erupts into a scorching fireball uh, and then darkness covers the whole throne of the beast. And towards the end, the Euphrates is dried up. Now, this is not as a pathway to freedom like when the Red Sea was, was held open and dried up, but as an opening for invasion from the east. And then we have another little interlude, and this features between the sixth and seventh bowl. Um, and this time it's not a song of praise, but it's to describe these demon frogs uh, that go out kind of gathering up all the kings of the earth for this battle. And the place that is set for battle is this infamous site, of Armageddon. Now, I thought I would show a video uh, factually of what Armageddon is all about. Um, And this is exactly, I think, what's going to happen and why Armageddon is so important for us. So hopefully you'll be able to see this uh, on the screen. So 1998, it's closer than you think. Apparently the Armageddon has already happened, come and gone. Um, Did you hear them say that it's basically the worst parts of the Bible? Did you hear the the captain say that that's what's what's coming? So it's interesting, their approach. So if we look a little bit more carefully at this um, passage, we can also demystify this whole popular um, culture thing that's come up around Armageddon, because you would think for a term that has been so well used, uh, not just in Christian circles, um, but in culture as well, that... It would be mentioned in the Bible a few times. You would think that, um, but, sorry to um, disappoint you, but this is the one and only time that Armageddon is actually referred to in the whole Bible, and it's here in Revelation 16. So straight away, that should give us some kind of idea of the prominence that we should give to this concept, uh, and. It seems that he was most likely referring to an area of land that would have been the site for many sort of significant battles in Israel's history. So we know that John uses symbolic language uh, a lot, and here is another example, because this spot would have really resonated with the hearers uh, as a place where battle took place, so logically it would be uh, symbolic of where the final battle would be. So they weren't thinking of this 1998 Bruce Willis flick, about the end of the world because there's an asteroid hurtling towards space and we have to send, not astronauts, um, but drillers out into the uh, cosmos. So they weren't picturing any of those things, they were imagining this old historic site. So we can kind of put aside the whole Armageddon thing, I think, a little bit. And we come to this final bowl and it's poured into the air and then this triumphant dun is sounded before there's this huge cacophony of lightning and thunder and earthquakes and anger and hailstones and all this sort of stuff that plummets down. So John's hearers would have got the idea that this wasn't the collapse of the physical world, but a collapse of all the systems and the powers that the beast controlled. So the best metaphor for a collapse of society as they knew it was this kind of devastating hail and thunderstorm. So the bowl started with a command to begin, and then now we hear, done. So even though what follows can seem like huge devastation, there is hope that this is it. That judgment was always going to have an end, and this is that end point. So what seems to be more significant than Armageddon uh, in this passage is this kind of broken record of sin and repentance that we keep hearing. So again, we discover in this chapter, as we have in previous ones, we hear this judgment, but then still people's failure to repent. So we could easily look at these people and think, flip, you know, get it together. Don't you realize what's happening? Can't you see the pattern? Judgment, I mean, sin, judgment, no repentance. And then again, we have sin, judgment, and still these people fail to repent. But of course, it's easy to just project this out onto other people, isn't it? The people in this passage, for example, that have the mark of the beast on them and still fail to repent. Or people around us that we know, maybe even people sitting in our row that we see as sinners and they should really be getting their lives together. Don't they see what's happening to them, etc.? Because we are fine, right? Yeah, I mean, we're fine. We've got it all together. But yet we come across these kind of demonic frog-type creatures, which is quite interesting, in verse 14, and they managed to convince a whole bunch of kings to gather for a battle. How might they do that, do you think? I guess these frogs were quite convincing and cunning, and they managed to whisper into these kings' ears, perhaps, that you are really strong and powerful and powerful. And you can definitely fight and win this battle. You are totally independent and you're going to own this. Does that sound familiar? So, these demons, I think, symbolize what sin, in all of its forms, does to convince us to continue sinning. And sin is this destructive force, it's distracting as well. Sin as a personal thing, but also as cosmic sin across the world. We sin but we also live in a broken world that's full of sinfulness. So we make mistakes, even though we know not to, and even though we know God, even though we know the hurt that it's going to cause to other people or to ourselves, even though we don't really want to, except sometimes we do actually want to. And I think sin can use some convincing lines, just like these demonic spirits would have used. I wonder if you can identify with any of these. I've actually been really good today, so this can be a treat, you know? Or what about this one? Well, I am not hurting anyone else, so what does it matter? Or maybe, you know, they deserve it. I mean, you don't know what they did to me, but they totally deserve that. Or the reverse of the first one. Um, I'm having a bad day, so I kind of need this. Or it's their fault and not mine, so I'm allowed to do this, that, and the next thing to them. Now some of you will be thinking, how did she get into my head and get into my diary and my personal thoughts? While others of you that know me thinking, it's okay, she's just talking about herself, this is just what's going on in her own head. But unfortunately, it's both, because this is all of you, and it's me as well. It's us, and it's sin. It's distracting, and it's destructive. Often it's our own personal sin, but often it's just the force of sin that comes as a consequence of living in a broken world. Things are not how they should be. We get sick. We lose our jobs. We feel lonely. We can't make sense of what is going on around us. People die young. Or people die old and in pain. And we know that this broken record of sin, we know this for ourselves. It's what we keep reading in Revelation, how sin keeps skipping back to the same point over and over again. And like these kings, we sometimes have these hopping frogs kind of distracting us, taking us here and there and over here again with promises and lies and stories, distracting us from God. And Tom Wright describes these frogs as able to hop to and fro with their specious stories and plausible arguments, persuading the great and powerful to commit themselves to a hopeless cause. Now I had to look up this word, uh, specious, because I hadn't actually heard it before. Um, But I looked it up, and it seems to be something that is seemingly factual, but actually false. And it comes from the Latin for good-looking isn't it interesting? And how often is sin quite appealing and actually quite good looking? Um, so I thought it was an interesting connection. How often is sin a distraction because it's good and we think it's good? Often, I know for myself, and preaching through this kind of passage, you can't help but have your own challenges and convictions that, um, that God stirs in you as you read these words. It's definitely not something that's separate from me. I'm very aware of this for myself. And I find I often get distracted quite easily to thinking about myself instead of God. And it plays out because I start to believe that what I want is the most important thing above all else for the sake of myself. So it would be okay if this was kind of self-care, you know, for the good of the kingdom. But it's really not. Um, It's just self-care for myself. And so I allow myself to have things because I want them and I think I deserve them. And then they become what sustains me and what keeps me going and gives me hope for the next day rather than God. So I know what it's like. And I think between me and you and all of us, we've probably dealt with lots of things on this list. For example, selfishness, idolatry, lust, lies, coveting. They're not really nice things to name, are they? We don't really like thinking of them And we don't really like thinking of those specific examples when we have been distracted from God onto something else. But you know what is amazing to think of? And that's Jesus. I mean, nice isn't even a strong enough word. It is amazing to think of him. Because he took all of these ugly and embarrassing and awkward and messy and kind of gross, petty, mean annoying things, and he took all of those onto the cross. He took the stuff that we do by commission, but also the things we don't do that we should be doing, and he took all of the other stuff that kind of fills this world with brokenness, and he took it all to the cross. Can you imagine how heavy all of that must have been? I mean, I just think about all of my own stuff and that feels heavy, but can you imagine that multiplied out? And he endured one of the most horrific ways to die, and he didn't deserve any of it. And on the cross, with the weight of all of that mess, he said, it is finished. It is done. And he didn't just die, but he came back from death. And now he is preparing for the day when he will again say, it is done to all of this. And like we read here in Revelation 16, there's this voice that comes from the temple, and it says, done, finally, to all of this judgment, done to the plagues, done to sin, done to the sadness, sickness, anxiety, done to torture, stress, hurt, tears, done to cancer, to loneliness, to infertility, to abandonment, to redundancy done to pride and anger and fear, done to all of those things that aren't how they are meant to be, those things we mourn for, done to all of the defilements of God's original plan, done to all those deviants of sin. He will say, done, and it will all be done. Done. And one day, this broken record that we keep finding through revelation of sin and judgment, one day this broken record will actually be done. And it will be broken officially, smashed, broken into, however you want to make it broken. Not broken because it keeps skipping back to the same point, but actually broken and finished with. Man, that is how much God loved us, but loves us and will keep on loving us. And that's huge. That's too much to even comprehend because a God who loves us that much must hate sin because sin separates us, sin distracts us. So as we try to become more and more like Jesus, we grow to hate sin more and more, to flee from it, to run in the opposite direction. Now, many of you will know... um, Charles Hewlett, who spoke last year at our church camp. Uh, He's also the principal of Kerry Baptist College, and he's written a paper which he has called, Why I Value Suffering. So already it's a great read, just from the title, Um, but it's not written out of kind of lofty academia, but it's written out of his own family life, and some of you will know Charles and Joe's story. Their first child, Janelle, was born with a massive, uh, inoperable brain tumour. And they were told that she would only have three months to live. She went on to live until she was 13 years old, but she suffered um, extreme intellectual and physical disabilities and faced a lot of suffering throughout her life. Then their son James, who was born uh, two years after Janelle, is severely intellectually disabled. And today he is 18 years old, but he has the intellectual ability of a six-month-old baby. So he is dependent on them for all of their needs. Then their daughter, Jessica, who was born 12 years after James, she was born 10 weeks early. And so initially, again, they faced fears uh, of disability. And although today she is a healthy um, and active six-year-old, They lived for a good period of time there thinking that she had cerebral palsy. Uh, And Charles says this about sin. I am reminded of the enormity of sin, and I am encouraged to remove it from my life. I'm reminded by these things. When I would watch my daughter Janelle vomiting first thing in the morning because of the pressure that the tumor had built up in her brain overnight. When I watch my son unable to comprehend the most simplest of instructions. When I stand by the graveside of my my mother-in-law, my father and my daughter, all who died of cancer. I have a vivid illustration of how terrible sin is and where it ultimately leads. And not that their actions led to sickness, but that we live in a world not functioning as was meant to because of sin. I value suffering because it helps me to hate sin and what it does. And I am encouraged to be more and more like Jesus. Pretty powerful words. So reading Revelation 16 reminds us of the destructiveness of sin, but also what is done, what has been done, and what will be done. The story isn't over. We're coming to that point in the book where this judgment has an end. But now we live in this time of waiting. We are aware of the distraction of sin. And I wonder how sin manages to distract you. Maybe it distracts you into thinking just of yourself. Maybe it distracts you into, onto someone else, onto your job, onto whatever you see your role as, whether that's a boss or a co-worker or a parent or a spouse, all of these things as admirable things, but are they distracting from God? So just as these demons seem to distract these kings, so too does sin distract us from God. And so we take the warning that this passage gives us as Jesus says, I come like a thief. And we take this warning to bring our focus back time and again to Jesus and what has been done for us. And that's not out of guilt, but out of immense grace and gratitude. So we remind ourselves that our sin is done, it has been paid for, but that one day the total broken record of all the effects of sin in the world will also be done. We continue to look to our great and just God, who, as we talked about last week, is not safe, but is good, because he is king. And we need to remind each other of this, I think, because in the middle of when life isn't as it should be, we need to be pointing people back to the cross, and to one day what will be done in the new creation. So we keep in mind the end of the story. Because that becomes for us our hope. And that's a concrete hope. When the force of sin becomes too much to handle, we need to know so well this story of redemption that it becomes our anchor and it becomes what holds us. So when everyone else would around us say that life is hopeless, we will have real hope in where the story is going. I'd like to pray as we close from... This passage and what is said from the temple about God. Let's pray. God, you are just in these judgments. You who are and who were the Holy One. God, we know all too well the effects of sin in our lives and in the world. And we want to be reminded every day of your grace and the hugeness of your love that you poured out to us by sending Jesus to die on a cross. And we are so grateful for this. We can't even begin to understand the full extent of it, but... From what we do know, we are so grateful and we come back to you. We don't want to be distracted by these other things. We want to be close to you. I pray that you would draw us to yourself. That you would help us to open up to those around us ways that we can support each other. God, thank you for your grace that is new to us every day. And thank you that one day it will be done and we will be before you. And we just long and look forward to that day and we use that to give us the hope to keep going. We pray these things in your name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.